0: Let's go to Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 1 this evening. Colossians chapter 1, and we left off in verse 19. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this letter, for this epistle with the supremacy of Christ. And we ask tonight, as we come and spend time in your word, that you would get a hold of our attention that you, Jesus, would be magnified, that no matter what our circumstances are, if we've had a long day, if we feel alive or, or if we feel dead inside, that you would speak to us and that we would find our fullness in you, Christ. So would you please pour out your spirit? Would you bless this time in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Internal over external. It's always better when we can live inside out, touched by God in our hearts. A lot of times there's rules that are on the exterior and they're just that. They're they're just rules. They don't move us. We may even respect those rules, but they aren't rules that that we believe in. But when there's something that has touched our heart and there's that place of, of conviction, it's entirely different. To illustrate this, one of the things that in my home growing up, is we had chores on Saturday. We had some chores during the week, but Saturday morning was either you mowed the lawn or you washed the family station wagon. Before you went out to do anything, the lawn had to be mowed and the car had to be washed. My brother and I would, would alternate. You'd mow, mow the lawn one week and then wash the car at the other. A lot of times when it was my turn to wash the car, I did it as quickly as possible with no attention to detail. My dad would come back around and inspect Say, son, you've got to do this again. You see this dirt right here. It's your job to wash it. So get the hose back out. Get the bucket back out. You need, need to wash it again. And this was kind of the way it went for most times when I was washing the car. Until I turned 16. And I got my driver's license. And my parents let me use the station wagon to take a girl on a date. And I was like, oh my goodness, this car is going to look so good, right? It was a Ford Taurus. I don't know how Ford Tauruses can look good, but I scrubbed and I polished and I worked because why? It was internal instead of external. What we're going to read tonight is this, that Paul writes, and he says, The mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. A relationship with the Lord goes from being external to internal. The new covenant from the old covenant. Our lives look different from Old Testament believers because the living God, the creator of the universe, of which all fullness dwells, lives inside of us. This is out of Jeremiah 31. I'd like to read to you. Verses thirty-one to verse thirty-four. It's the promise of the new covenant. It says, "Behold, the days are coming," says the Lord, "when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them," says the Lord. "But this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days," says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See the difference? Went from being external to internal. God says I'm going to write upon their, hei- their hearts. Such good news for us tonight as believers. The Christian life is much more so than just observing at looking at the life of Christ and saying, now I have to copy that, I have to emulate that. It's Christ actually living inside of us and him guiding us, him directing us, him speaking to us, him writing upon our hearts. Before we get into verse 19, let's go back to verse 15 as Paul is looking at the supremacy of Christ, who Christ is, and then we'll start in verse 19. So read with me in verse 15. who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Verse 19, where we pick up tonight. For it, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So we're having this great description of Christ, all of his attributes. We now come to this, that in him all the fullness dwells. Focus your attention on it pleased the Father, To put all of the fullness into Jesus Christ. Picture the Father with a smile on his face, with all joy, with all satisfaction, saying, I am putting all of the fullness of all things into Jesus. Why is this so important? It shows the relationship between the Father and the Son, the love between the Father and the Son. It also shows us that Jesus is God, the deity of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, verse 9, just the next chapter over, it says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So not only the fullness of all things, but the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So in fact, he is indeed God. So in our lives, as we experience Christ, if we want to know fullness, it will be found the closer we get to the Lord. The closer that we get to him, the more focus that we put upon him, the more that we walk with him and surrender to him, the more that our souls will be full. Because in him all fullness dwells. But the opposite is true as well. The further that I get away from the Lord, the more that I drift away from him, the more that he is diminished in my perspective, the emptier that I would feel. Remember this church that's in what is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, was facing false teaching. The teaching was coming in Gnosticism, and it was diminishing Christ, diminishing the deity of Christ, the importance of Christ, and emphasizing knowledge, and saying that fullness was found in knowledge. The more that you know, the more education that you have, the fuller you're going to be. It's similar today. We have a great emphasis on education in our culture. We possibly know more than any other generation prior, any civilization. We have more information that's accessible to us, but has it hasn't gotten us any further along? Has it really resulted in a greater fullness in our lives? And education has its place, but only as our focus is in Jesus Christ you can be extremely educated. You can have all knowledge. Spend your life studying, but be completely empty. The fullness that we're looking for in every aspect of life is found in Christ. I found that to be convicting as I was, I was studying this. Is, am I looking to Christ to be my fullness? Or am I looking to, to other things? We can have ministry goals that end up becoming... our our fullness. We can have financial goals, family goals, good things, but we're putting our substance and our expectation in that instead of the Lord, and we will come up empty every time. My pastor growing up, he would put it this way, a lot of times we view our Christian life like a TV dinner, a Swanson TV dinner, where you have all of these different compartments. You've got your vegetables over here, Usually with a TV dinner, there's some really nasty potatoes, aren't there? Mashed potatoes, if you can call them mashed potatoes. And then you've got your, whatever the, the main thing is, and then over here's your, your little, little dessert. And a lot of times our, our life with Christ is really segregated. We've got the Lord on Wednesday nights, the Lord on, on Sunday mornings, our devotions in the morning. But then there's other parts of our lives that we don't allow Christ to, to touch. And what my pastor would then suggest is you've got to view your Christian life much more like a chicken pot pie. Instead of Christ being separated from different parts of our lives, what's a, what's a chicken pot pie? It's all mixed up together. The creamy goodness is mixed up all together. And you don't keep Christ out of your marriage. You don't keep Christ out of your relationship with kids. You don't keep Christ out of your work life because he's the fullness. He, he's everything. And we put him in the priority. Notice the progression. We don't want to lose sight of verse 18, that he is the one who has preeminence. He is before all things. He's the head. So we put him in his proper place, and we experience the fullness of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but this is a truth that I've always got to come back to. I've always got to check myself on. Where's my heart? Where's my soul? Am I starting to look to other things to provide fullness? Or am I looking to the Lord? And if it is that we're getting a little bit off that center tonight, may we come back to that place, Jesus, it's you. You are the fullness. Sometimes over time, when we're sharing with other people, we can also lose sight of the importance of the centrality of Jesus Christ. We start playing Mr. Fix-It, Mrs. Fix-It. We start analyzing this or analyzing that here here's your work life and you might want to find a different job or you know here's some techniques in parenting here's some communication skills in marriage and again all of those things have their place but you know what we really need to be sharing with them is fellowship with Jesus Christ are you putting Christ at the center of your day the midst of your job even if you do need to change jobs it can you say that Christ Christ is your focus Because more than a person needs a change in their job, they need to be connecting with Christ and walking with Christ. And over time, we can stop sharing Christ and we can start quarterbacking our lives and their lives. We can start saying, Well, I think this is what you need, and and that's what you need. And we want to be careful of what we're sharing with people and where we're pointing them, that we're not just giving them techniques on a better life, but we're pointing them to Jesus and fellowship with Christ because in him is is the fullness. There is a place for those techniques, but they're they're secondary to that fellowship with Christ. In verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by God, whether things on earth or whether things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So Jesus is fullness and Jesus is the reconciler. What does it mean to reconcile reconcile? What, what is the definition? Making things right, bringing things together into harmony, making one account consistent with the other. I'm going to do a room buster right now. You guys ready for it? In the back of the room by the sound booth is a clock. You can go ahead and look right there, okay? It's right there. So notice the time on the clock. That's to hold me accountable, to not allow me to preach too long. Now if you've, if you've got your phone, go ahead and pull out your phone. And you'll look and see what time it is. Now, that's amazing with these atomic clocks that, that we have. You'll notice that the times don't reconcile. Go ahead and look. I think that that one's two minutes slow. All right? So if I'm two minutes long in my preaching, it's because the phones are not reconciled. Oh, 7.13. So they're off by by one minute. Okay? Now my phone's on. If my phone rings, you'll you'll know what is... Taking place here. So, to reconcile these two phones, or that clock and this phone, this one's right. It's atomic. So, we would have to bring that clock into line with this, then they would be reconciled. You following me? They would be brought together into harmony. Now, for sake of illustration, this is the Lord, and we're the clock that's off. We're reconciled unto God because we're the sinners. And he's absolutely holy and absolutely perfected. In this work of reconciliation, he's the one who has provided it by the blood of his son. He has made peace through the blood of his son. We accept it through faith. And by him reconcile all things to himself, bringing brought into harmony, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is speaking, and please pay attention to this, in light of all of scripture to those that trust Christ for salvation and creation this is not teaching universalism that the death and resurrection of Christ provided salvation for everyone that's why you have to compare this to the rest of scripture salvation's offered to everyone Jesus is willing to reconcile everyone to himself but this isn't negating the responsibility of the individual to believe. If someone just read this verse and didn't read the rest of their Bible, they may think that Christ died and rose again, so everybody's saved regardless of whether they trust Christ for salvation or not. But again, if we read the whole Bible, we know that in order to be reconciled to God, we must trust in the Lord by faith. Notice there's one category that's not in verse 20. It doesn't say whether things on earth or things in heaven are or those under the earth, those under the earth with those that have rejected Christ as their Savior and are experiencing eternal judgment. We must believe in order to be saved. What's this reconciliation in creation? How come creation needs to be brought back into harmony with Christ? Romans 18, or Romans 8, excuse me, verse 19 tells us, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who was subjected in hope. Because creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Because of sin, Creation went into bondage and creation longs to be reconciled longs to be brought Back into that right relationship with the lord. So that's fascinating in and of itself Did I lose you guys or are you with me? Give me a if you're with me If for some reason you're confused on what I just said about universalism And the requirement to believe uh, to be saved and I mean this I'd love to have a conversation with you afterwards because I'd hate to, to lose you And if for some reason I lost you, let's talk afterwards. And if you're good, I'm willing to talk with you afterwards as well. But I want to make sure I don't lose anybody. Verse 21, And you who are once alienated and enemies in your own mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Our condition, our sinful condition, put us in a place where we desperately needed The reconciliation provided by Christ through his blood upon the cross. Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us we were dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses. I was reading in Romans just in my devotions this week and I was really ministered to. Because as you read those first four chapters of the epistle of Romans, Paul lays out our need for Christ in such a powerful way. He talks about how we've rejected God based on creation. God's turned us over to our lusts. He gives us a list of things that is deserving of God's judgment. Then he says, if you approve of these things, you're you're guilty as well. He gets to chapter 3 and he says, there's none righteous, no, not one. But then it goes on to say that Christ justifies us through faith. He declares us righteous through faith as we trust in the finished work of Christ. But it was chapter 4 that really ministered to me, and it was Abraham, an example of faith. It says that Abraham didn't consider his own weakness. God promised him a child in his own age. Him and Sarah were beyond the years of physically being able to have children. Yet Abraham still believed that God was able to do the impossible. Abraham's lifted up as an example of faith. And what hit me is Abraham could do nothing to contribute to the fulfillment of the promise of God. He could bring nothing to the table to make that happen. It was physically impossible. All he was asked to do and all he could do is believe that God had the ability to do it. And God gives us that as an example for salvation. And it hit me, I do nothing to bring about salvation. I can bring nothing to the table to earn or deserve my salvation because I was dead in my sins and dead in my trespasses. I was alienated from God because of my sinful condition. Romans lays that out really clearly. There's none righteous, no, not one. The only thing God was asking me to do and the only thing I could do is believe his ability to provide salvation. That's amazing grace. And that's what's taught here in Colossians as well. Christ is the reconcile, reconciler. We are alienated by our own wicked works. But then as we trust it in faith, notice what the position that he brought us into. Verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Why is there the emphasis on the body of Christ, his flesh, his crucifixion, upon the cross, because the Gnostics were saying that Jesus never came in the flesh, that he was only a spirit. So if he was just a spirit, then he has no physical being that could be put to death. They're negating the crucifixion of Christ. So Paul's saying, look, the flesh, the body, the humanity of Christ, God in human flesh is important. It was his flesh that took the punishment for our sin, so that we would no longer be alienated, but he would present us holy. Jesus has presented you holy if you've trusted him for salvation. And blameless and above reproach in his sight. Church, isn't that far out? Isn't that good news? To know that you have been presented blameless before the Father. Do you feel blameless? I don't feel blameless. I I feel sinful, right? We, We know that. That we're sinful. Look at this phrase here. It says, above reproach in his sight. This means that we're free from accusation. There's no accusation that can be brought up against us before a holy God because we're robed in Christ's righteousness, because we're covered in the flesh of Jesus Christ. We're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. As we sang tonight about the crucifixion and him taking our place so that we would be forgiven, so that we would be blameless. Again, this is something that we receive through faith, not a condition of our works, a gift that has been granted to us. Now, gang, who's the accuser of the brethren? If you know, let me know. Amen. Satan. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Amen. Satan. So he loves to come to you, and say, Oh, you're not forgiven. You're not holy. You're not blameless. You're not above reproach. Look at all of the things that you have have done. And that's where we hold on to the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's where we plead the blood of Jesus. We're saying, look, I know that I'm sinful, but because of my position in Jesus Christ, I know that I am am blameless. Do you notice that this position has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with Jesus? It's our position in Christ. It's his sacrifice that then causes us to be blameless and holy. Quite a turnaround from verse 21. Quite a turnaround from being alienated, being the enemy of God, being opposed to him in our sinful state, to now being reconciled, brought in harmony, brought into this wonderful position in the body of Christ. In verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. What's the condition to have this blameless position? Continue in faith. Continue in trusting in the Lord. It's important that we stay steadfast in the gospel. There's three words that are given to us. Grounded, steadfast, and not moved. Stable, steadfast, and not shifting in the gospel. It's important that we trusted the gospel at some point in our lives. Maybe it was 20 years ago, but it's also really important that we trust in what Christ has done right here tonight. Every single day of our lives of saying, I know I have sinned, I know I have struggled in my life, I know that I stray, but I'm grounded in this. I'm planted in this. I know that Jesus loves me. I know that he died on the cross for me. I know that he rose again, and he's the Lord of my life. Maybe you've heard me say this a few times past, but if you're not confident of the gospel today, tonight, if you're not grounded in the gospel tonight, it's important that you get to that place. It's important that you press through and wrestle with that question Because the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, tells us, continue in the gospel. Continue in trusting what Christ has done for you. Paul says that he's become a minister of the gospel. This is a servant of the gospel. He allowed his life to enter into this mission of following after Christ and being used for God's glory. Entering into the great commission of living for Christ and living for the gospel brings great joy into our lives, to be a servant in the Lord's field. In verse 24, I now rejoice in my suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. This can be a confusing verse, so let's, let's break it down and see what it means. First, Paul's expressing that he is rejoicing in suffering because he knows that it's going to edify the body of Christ, edify the church of Colossae. He says that he wants to fill up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We know for sure that Paul is not saying that he had to suffer in order to make the atonement of Christ sufficient, that there was something insufficient in the work of Christ. When Christ died upon the cross, what did he say? It is finished. The work is complete. So it's very important to understand that. This isn't an issue of completion. What Paul is talking about here is conformity. That he is, as a minister of the gospel, he's conforming his life to the cross, which means that he's willing to suffer. And in suffering, he knows believers are going to be encouraged, and unbelievers are going to be one to Jesus Christ. What is the one thing that remained in the glorified resurrected body of Jesus Christ? His scars, his wounds. John 20, doubting Thomas. How do I know this is you, Lord? Go ahead and put your put your hands into my wounds. Revelation tells us that we'll behold Jesus as the Lamb of God who is slain. We're going to see him in that glorified state with his wounds from the cross. So the body of Christ, the resurrected body of Christ, bears wounds for all of eternity that we will behold. We are the body of Christ. Jesus calls us that. So in walking in conformity to the life of Christ means we have to be willing to be wounded, for the gospel's sake, so that people can know the love of Christ, so they can understand the work of Christ. That's what Paul is speaking to here, that he's bringing his life into conformity to the example of Christ, falling in the footsteps of Christ, being willing to suffer. I'm wrestling with suffering. I feel like personally right now in my life, I can't really say that I'm embracing suffering. I'd be lying if I was, I was there. But it appears that everything that is standing out to me right now in the scripture has to do with suffering. So I think God is wanting me to get more comfortable with suffering in my life and possibly trying to get me to that place where I embrace it and rejoice in it, knowing that God is doing a great work. I know it up here, but God's trying to get it in here, into my heart and life. Today, just right outside of this wall, there's a wheelchair ramp that comes down with a, a set of rails. And you should check it out when you go home because a lady was dropping off donations at Goodwill. And then she was turning to do a U-turn and somehow ended up down here in all of these, these rails. And she totally wrecked her car. I mean, her, wreck, her car was just completely totaled. And thankfully, she was, she was okay. But it was quite an ordeal for her today. And I felt really bad for her. I was like, she's probably having a pretty good day, you know, trying to donate stuff and do the right thing with stuff. I mean, it's so easy to just put your stuff out in the trash. And she's like, no, I want to, I want to see somebody else be blessed from from the stuff she's dropping it off. And here you, here she finds herself at the door of the sanctuary in a way that she wasn't wanting to be, right? <laughs> and that's difficult. It's suffering that. That's involved there, and finances that are involved there, and and at the end of the day, it's 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 just a car. And I know that many of you are facing suffering in, in such greater ways: the loss of a child, the loss of a marriage that you didn't want to end, that you you stood for, and your spouse was was unfaithful, and really deep financial difficulties and physical physical difficulties. And I think what Paul says here is really important. And I think it is God's heart for us to understand as a follower of Christ. It's so easy to rejoice in the fullness of Christ and Christ as the reconciler and then not embrace his mission of being willing to suffer for the sake of the cross. If you connect verse 23 and verse 24, what Paul's saying here is, I am a servant of the gospel, which means I'm going to suffer for Christ's sake. And because I'm suffering for Christ's sake, I'm going to rejoice because I know that the body of Christ is benefiting. He says, I'm suffering for you. And then he goes on and says, which is the church, the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. The church is going to be built up by watching Paul suffer. We believe that this is another one of Paul's letters that he wrote while he was in prison based on the timing. Acts 28 his imprisonment there his first imprisonment that he wrote this epistle as well Most likely he's sitting in a prison cell saying I am more than willing and i'm rejoicing The fact that I get to suffer so that the body of christ would be built up and would be edified This is a few things that I know that god does in suffering One of the things is it helps us to know christ in a greater way true when we suffer It gives us the chance, if we take it, to know Christ in a greater way. Also, what do we know that God does when we suffer? If we allow it to. It grows our character. Gives us endurance. Gives us character. Gives us perseverance. Too bad you can't download character. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Just going to go into iTunes. I'm going to download some character today. That would be wonderful. It's earned the old-fashioned way. Through suffering, through difficulty, that's where real character gets developed. Also, suffering becomes our greatest ministry. That's what Paul's saying here. I know that suffering is going to result in God using me to encourage and impact lives. Think about Lazarus, who died and rose again. So exciting that God raised him from the dead. Maybe not for Lazarus. He was dead for four days. Where was he? He was in eternity. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth from eternity right back to Mary and Martha. How you doing, sisters? What's, what's going on? You know, and They were stoked, but I don't know how stoked Lazarus was. He's like, it's a lot better on the other side. Why did you ask Jesus to bring me back? You know." And then what we find in the rest of the Gospels, and there's reference to Lazarus after that point, it was Lazarus who was dead, whom Christ raised. He was known by his suffering. You know that as well. If you've had a loved one pass away of cancer, you're known. You're known as the one who's lost their spouse due, due to cancer. If you suffer with some physical disease, you're, you're known by that in your family and friends and in your neighborhood. He, he has this. He's, he's going through this. His life is different be, because of this. And in the midst of that suffering, it gives us a unique, real, transparent platform for Christ to be able to be displayed. And then very importantly, suffering keeps us rooted in eternity. When things don't go quite right, it puts our hope in heaven, doesn't it? And we're brought back to that place of my, my hope is in heaven. So hopefully God can grow us in that place like Paul, that we can rejoice in our sufferings. In verse 25, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me to fulfill the word of God. We see Paul's attitude towards Christ in the gospel. He describes himself with two words, as a minister and also as a steward. Minister is a servant or a slave, someone who takes their orders from someone else. This is not just for Paul, but it can be for us as well. We can choose to serve Christ, to serve the gospel. I'm taking My instruction's from him. A steward is someone who manages somebody else's house. It's not their house, not their stuff. And Paul's saying, my life belongs to the Lord, and I've received this under this arrangement where I'm the steward. The purpose is to fulfill the word of God. He wants to see God's word fulfilled. In verse 26, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. Talking about the gospel, he says, here's this incredible mystery that God chose not to reveal in times past, but now he's revealed it. So it's not a mystery in the sense that it's beyond finding out, but it's a mystery in the sense that at this point in time is when God chose to reveal it. So here's the mystery. You guys ready for it? He tells it to us very clearly in verse 27. To them, God willed to make known What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? So this amazing new covenant that God would bring Jews and Gentiles together, which is, here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't there a little bit of mystery to that truth? That Christ, the creator of the universe, could dwell inside of me, could dwell inside of you, and that is the hope of glory. Let's think for a moment all of the things that we have read about Christ in chapter 1. That he's the image of the invisible God. So he's the image of the Father. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him, all things consist. He's the head of the body. He has preeminence. All the fullness dwells in Christ. He's the reconciler. And now here it is. It's all building to this moment you've trusted Christ for salvation, bam, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Not your hard work, not your devotion, not what church you go to, not who your Christian friends are, not who you listen to on a podcast, none of those things. What is the hope of glory? It's Christ in you is the hope of glory. It's internal instead of external. We've just finished the Olympics What are we going to do in the evenings now? (laughs) Olympics are done and they don't come back for two more years and four years for the summer. What if we decided that we wanted to be an Olympic athlete and we watched the runners, the sprinters, and we watched the film a thousand times? We said, I'm going to take what they did out in the track and field and I'm going to practice it, and practice it, and practice it, and practice it. Do you think there is any probability that we would be in the next Olympics? No chance, right? There's no way. There's no hope of glory for that. There's no hope of me getting a a gold medal. But I observed it. I could tell you the technique. I tried it. I went to Bible studies on it. I got lectured on it. I know it. But yet... There's such failure in my life. And I think a lot of times this is how we view the Christian life. We observe Jesus. We read the Gospels. We see how he treated people. We go, okay, that's the way I've got to act. I need to be like Jesus. I need to walk in his footsteps. I've read this over and over and over again. Now I'm going to go out and do it. Fall on our faces. There's no hope of glory. Why? Because we're missing the fact that it's not just external. It's not just us following a bunch of rules. It's not just us observing and then trying to put those rules in place. It's actually that Christ lives inside of us and that Christ is writing his will upon our hearts, that he's leading us through our day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his word saying, Eric, you need to do this. Eric, you need to close your mouth right now. Really, please, son, listen. Close your mouth right now, right? He's here. And if I'll live out of that relationship with him, allowing him to lead me, allowing him to guide me, it's completely different than me just observing and trying to do it. See the difference? It's Christ in you, hope of glory. How do we know that God is going to complete the good work that he started in us? Because he's put Christ inside of us. That's tremendous, isn't it? That's amazing. That's the new covenant. That's the mystery. That's internal over external. We go into verse 28. It says, him we preach. This is so important. Church, we all preach. You don't don't have to have a pulpit to preach. All of us are sharing. And what are we sharing? We are sharing Christ. Because it's Christ in you is the hope of glory. And over time, a church, individuals, gets away from Christ. It's so easy for us to lose our message and start sharing other things instead of preaching Christ. Do you know that first and foremost, this is not political? First and foremost, this is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't overthrow the Roman government. And the Roman government was extremely corrupt. Do you know what he was more concerned about? Whether people were going to heaven or hell. Am I concerned about our politics? Absolutely. But we've lost something as a church if we're preaching politics instead of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've lost something with my friends and my neighbors and my coworkers if I only talk politics with them and I don't share Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I don't share with them, hey, you know what, we're sinners, alienated from God. But this is what Jesus has done for us. He died for us and he, he rose again. We we preach Christ. We could get off on so many different tangents, couldn't we? But Paul says, we preach Christ. Do you know how many cultural issues Paul could have been preaching on in his day? But he says, I'm going to preach Christ because he knew if people came to know Christ in genuine faith and repentance. The cultural issues would get addressed. Politics would get addressed. The things that they desperately desired to see change would get addressed, but they would be addressed through the cross and him crucified. We've got to stay true to to our message. We preach him, we preach Christ. And then we're warning every man and preaching and teaching every man in wisdom. We're warning and teaching. Paul would warn and he'd teach, and both are necessary. Because if all we do is ever warn, no one knows how to grow. We've also got to be taught and instructed. But if we're not instructed, if we're only instructed and we're never warned, then we're just getting fattened up for the slaughter. Okay, here we are growing and growing and growing and growing, but we're not being warned of the dangers. So it's both being warned and being instructed. That we may present every man perfect in Christ. A good translation of the word perfect is mature. Paul wanted to present everybody mature in Christ. He wanted to see people continue to grow in Christ. That's why he adopted the attitude of being a servant. That's why he was willing to suffer. That's why he was declaring Christ. That's why he was warning and he was instructing. All so that people could be mature in Christ. And we end with this. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his work, which works in me mightily. Paul uses two words here, labor and striving. Labor means wearisome toil. Striving means agonizing like an athlete. Paul's saying, I'm willing to labor and I'm willing to strive because it's his working which works in me mightily. He's sharing what God had worked in him. And this is the effective way to reach out with the love of Jesus Christ is share what God is working in you. Think about the blind man who was healed in the Gospels. They come to question him about his healing. He says, look guys, this is what I know. I was blind and now I see. He shared what Jesus was working in his life. And that's the most powerful thing to be able to share with others, with family members, with co-workers, with other believers, is what has God been showing you? You can't give away the flu unless you've got it. One of the bummer about all the kids going back to school, they all get together in the same location, and they share germs, don't they? And they all get sick, but they've got to get it to be able to to give it away. You got to get contagious with Jesus, As a believer, as the child of God, we've got to have God showing us things and things that we're excited about, things that are moving us and convicting us, and then we're sharing that that with others. There's a big difference when we share from that place of something that God has worked in us. Quick application and we're done. Embrace Christ as fullness and the reconciler. Tonight, embrace him as the reconciler and absolute fullness in your life. Don't look anywhere else. Embrace suffering. Embrace the challenges. Embrace the difficulty. Know that God is working in the suffering. Paul chooses to rejoice. We can choose to rejoice as well. Live inside out. Go internal. Christ in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Live from that place of Christ being inside of us. And then share what God is working in you. What's God been working in you? That's what you share. That's what you declare to others. Gang, let's stand and let's pray together. You guys did so good. That's a lot of information in 45 minutes. You guys okay? Like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. (laughs) So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You're awesome. We give you glory. We look at you and see you in your power, that you are fullness, that you're the reconciler. Thank you that you live inside of us. Would you bring application of this message in our hearts and in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.